Get Lit. Welcome back to Get Lit, the literary podcast where we talk about famous works of literature and the authors who wrote them. I'm your host, Steph Spars, here with um, my general handyman. John Stricker. I helped Stephanie hang a light today. Yes, a light, in fact, that we purchased while we were in Iowa City on our tour um, for $25. It's really exquisite. I'll, I'll post a picture. I'm very excited. We found this thrift store called Artifact. Artifact. And I think it's what Stephanie's home will look like. There's just and things <laughs> from all over the place. We yeah. found um, an inkwell from the 1850s that mm-hmm. was used in British offices. Mm-hmm. How interesting. Yes, lots of books. Um, Magic furniture. Lantern show. Um, what? I it's, don't remember seeing that. It was in the back. It was like this really okay. big, it's what they used to like project slides with. Oh, they okay. called it a magic lantern. Um, some really amazing Pyrex kitchen bowls. That aside, um, a few quick announcements before we begin. Um, next week, we are both very excited to be working um, with Katie Saul and doing our Percy and Mary Shelley episode. Yes. Um, so that, I think, will be great. I'm also uh, really excited to explore these authors in preparation for me teaching Frankenstein for the first time next semester. So I think that'll be very um, good for me to take a look at that earlier. Um, They're also just a power couple, right? Yes. Yeah, it's going to be exciting. <laughs> for coming to Shelley's. Yes. Um, and also up and coming is our very Dickens Christmas that I'm absolutely thrilled with. I just found out that was the title and I'm excited about it. Isn't that a good one? Yes, it is. timing a very Dickens Christmas. Um, So that'll be um, closer to our Christmas episode, but um, I don't know. I'm trying to think of other authors that we associate with Christmas and I don't really know who else we might feature. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking, and this is kind of a brainstorming moment, um, about doing some authors of like the famous Christmas songs like Irving Berlin and that would be so cool that's all I can name (laughs) (laughs) I'm Jewish I get a pass can you name another Christmas songwriter yeah of course would you like me to name one right now yeah in front of everyone yep (laughs) John's getting out his phone to google it yeah I am (laughs) (laughs) Anywho, so maybe that'll be something that we could do. But um, folks, let us know. We're looking, um, obviously approaching the holidays and would love to do um, some authors to help you get into the holiday spirit, as it were. Mendelssohn. What? Handel. Yeah. Joy to the world. Like, um, what's Mendelssohn's? Isn't his The Wedding March? Well, yeah, he also wrote the many more. Angels We Have Heard on High. That's um. a Mendelssohn piece. Don't everyone... quote me on that, everyone. <laughs> quote him immediately. <laughs> um, okay, well, we'll get back to that. Uh, I don't know very many people who enjoy singing Angels We Have Heard on High, but you know what? Who am I to speak as a Jew? <laughs> <laughs> Shade thrown. Really? But do you actually sing Angels We Have Heard on High, like regularly at Christmas activity events? Yeah, of course. Great. Anywho, um, so that will get into the spirit of the holiday season. 
Um, additionally, I just wanted to talk about this. So last weekend I was up in Wisconsin, which is where my family is from, and stopped by this antique store and picked up a copy of Parker Brothers' 1943 game called Famous Authors. And it is amazing. Um, I'll post a picture of it, but basically it's a deck of cards with all these different authors on them. And... It has like their famous works written. So for example, there's like Shakespeare, um, there's Longfellow, there is um, a bunch of authors I've never heard of, which is kind of fun. There's Robert Louis Stevenson. Yep. And um, there's Mark Twain and one woman, (laughs) Louisa May Alcott, and everyone in the game is white. So this I think is kind of interesting because I have a new game called the Writer's Game, which I talked about a couple weeks ago. And it's so much more diverse. It contains all sorts of multitudes of authors. And so even just to compare these two games is awesome, but it's, it's really quite a remarkable, I think, find. I was very excited and I got it for $7. Yes, and it plays the exact same way as Go Fish. Right. So the idea just being that you want to collect as many of the authors that match as you can. Yep. Anywho, um, with that being said, speaking of famous authors, I couldn't think of a more vague and general transition than this. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about Langston Hughes. James Mercer, Langston Hughes. (laughs) Wait, really? Yeah. (laughs) Um, Was born on February 1st. 1902, making him an Aquarius. Um, Yes, obviously goes by Langston Hughes, but his actual first name was James, and he was named for his father, who was also James, uh, was born in Joplin, Missouri, making him another Midwestern writer, upping our canon um, of incredible Midwestern authors by another one. It's important to address our bias, but really, if... It's just true. Is it actually a bias? No. The Midwest produces better authors than anywhere else in the country. I said it here first. Copyright get lit. Challenge. I don't think that's a copyright. I don't think that's grounds for copyright. <laughs> but challenge me on that. Um, it's our IP now. Anywho. What? Intellectual property. Oh. Our IP? It is our oh, IP. Our IP. Okay. Um, so his parents, who, James and Carrie Langston, so his name actually comes from his mother's maiden name, which was oh. Langston, um, divorced when uh, Langston was a young child and his father moves to Mexico. So he didn't really grow up with a stable family situation in the traditional sense. Um, some interesting facts that I learned while I was doing research on his family um, was that both of Hughes' paternal great-grandmothers were enslaved African-Americans, and both of his paternal great-grandfathers were white slave owners. Whoa. Isn't that wild? Yeah. yeah. I think that's less... I think that's more common than we think it is. I agree with that. Um, so I just I thought that was really interesting. Um, there's He has all different kinds of like mixed race in his family, so... Definitely um, a multiracial upbringing and genealogy in his history. Hmm. Um, He was raised by his grandmother, Mary, uh, in Lawrence, Kansas, until he was 13, which was when she died. Um, And then he goes to Lincoln, Illinois, to live with his mother. 
So again, a very lack of uh, stable family unity in that regard. Parents are split up, doesn't live with mom. Yeah, that's um, tough. I did not know where Lincoln, Illinois was, so I looked it up. It's one hour west of Champaign, which made sense to me. For all of you non-Illinois listeners, um, Champaign is in central Illinois, and it's where John and I went to college, so this made sense to us. Mm-hmm. Um, so he heads to Lincoln, Illinois, and lives with his mother and her new husband, who gets a job in Cleveland, and so eventually he settles and will go to high school in Cleveland, Ohio. Um, And it's in Ohio and in the end of junior high and beginning of high school where Hughes begins to write poetry. One of his teachers introduced him to um, Carl Sandburg and Walt Whitman, the poets, uh, which he credits as launching and influencing his career, which I thought was very cool. So shout out to English teachers making a difference. Um, <laughs> he's a regular contributor to his high school's literary magazine. He goes and graduates from Central High School in 1920, and he spends the year in Mexico. He and his father had a fraught relationship, which actually wound up getting worse because of this trip. Um, but on the train on the way down to Mexico, he writes... A poem called The Negro Speaks of Rivers, which will be one of his most famous poems. And it's published in the Crisis magazine later down the line. Um, And I'm actually really excited. I teach um, a couple different acting classes. And one of the things that my acting class is doing is participating in Poetry Out Loud, which is an organization um, that's supported by the National Arts, the Endowment for the Arts, and uh, the Poetry Foundation, actually, in Chicago. And the point is to expose students to different kinds of poetry, to build, help them build empathy skills, um, and get a chance to expose themselves to new works. The premise of the project is that students choose a poem, and they memorize it, and then perform it. And then um, tournament style, they will kind of like, I don't want to say compete, but present their poems. Um, And winners are selected from each school that are sent to compete at a state level. Then winners are chosen to compete at a national level um, and memorize a bunch of different poetry. And one of my students chose The Negro Speaks of Rivers. I'm really excited for him to present it. How incredible. Did you have to do that in high school? Uh, No. I I think I missed the memorization unit in like every class because like the only thing I can remember memorizing is the preposition song in sixth grade. But I don't, did you ever have to? Mm-hmm. I memorized all things bright and beautiful. I think it's the same guy that wrote the series on the country veterinarian. No? You, no. All right. I don't remember his name. I remember the poem. Oh, what is it? All things bright and beautiful, all creatures great and small. <laughs> oh, hold on. That. That's only the first two lines. <laughs> Oh, good. Uh, there's the third one and the fourth one rides again, so. How old were you? I was probably... Fifth grade? No, it was older oh. than that. It was in junior high. Okay. Uh, I don't remember why I had to memorize that. And then mm-hmm. I memorized another poem when I went to college. A Valediction for Bidding Mourning by ah, John Donne. Yes, by John Donne. It's an interesting one. <laughs> I like it. Yeah, but I feel like you're a Donne sort of poet. I am interest. Anyhow. I just want a death mask. Ew. 
Ew, David. Okay. Um, back to the better poet, <laughs> Langston Hughes. Um, in 1921, he enrolls in Columbia University in New York City, which is where he gets his introduction to the Harlem Renaissance um, and the revolution of culture that's occurring for black folk across New York City. Um, he's only at Columbia for a year and then drops out and um, takes a bunch of different odd jobs. He's an assistant cook, he's a launderer, he's a busboy, um, and holds these jobs down while writing. Um, eventually, he signs on to be a steward on a freighter, and that takes him to Africa and to Spain. How many of these authors spend at least mm. a portion of their life on some type of seagoing vessel? Mm. Mark Twain, Eugene O'Neill. Melville. Herman Melville. Langston Hughes. I feel like there's somebody else that we did recently that that also. There's more. There definitely yeah. is. Anywho. That's I'm... very... Why haven't you? I don't know. Why haven't I? <laughs> Go get on a boat. I know. Find yourself on a boat. Yeah. Um, so he does that for a couple years. And in 1924, leaves the ship and lives in Paris for a brief amount of time. He continues to publish poetry while he's there and then moves back to the United States later in 1924 um, and settles in Washington, D.C. And uh, in 1925, he's working as a busboy in a hotel restaurant and meets the American poet uh, Vachel Lindsay, who I have no context for whatsoever. Never even heard of her. Him. Him. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Case Vachel? in point. Vachel, yes. I've never heard that name. Neither have I, but that was his name. Okay. Um, and so Hugh showed him some of the poems that he was working on, and um, Lindsay actually becomes a very big advocate for Hugh's early work and helps promote the poetry uh, that he's writing. In 1925, The Weary Blues is published and wins first prize in Opportunity Magazine, which hosts a literary competition. Um, and one of the things that I think is kind of cool is, is how many kind of poetry competitions launch the careers of these authors. Um, I'm thinking again of Edna St. Vincent Millay, who won a contest and then her literary career kind of took off after that. Um, so he wins a scholarship, actually, because of this this prize-winning poem. Um, and he attends Lincoln University in Pennsylvania, which is a historically black college. And he graduates in 1929 with a BA. And then during this time, while he's at school, he's actually supported by a wealthy patron of the arts, um, a woman in her 70s named Charlotte Osgood Mason. <laughs> Yes. And she, Thank you, Charlotte. Right? Well, like, well, sort of. Um, I just think it would be really cool to have a patron. This is just wishful thinking on your part, Stephanie. But wouldn't it just be kind of fun <laughs> if somebody just like paid you? Do every... your art, please. I will pay for it. I will. It pay doesn't for matter it. what it is. You will have the money, and you I will, will pay have... for it. Whatever it is, that would be great. Are you looking to be a philanthropist? I'm putting out a Craigslist ad for a patron right now. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I will apply. <laughs> um, so she helps his career while he's in college and convinces him to write Not Without Laughter. Um, but they have a dispute in 1930, and that kind of dissolves that relationship. 
Um, but Not Without Laughter does get published also in 1930 and wins the Harmon Gold Medal for Literature. So wow. it was a good thing that she pushed him to do that, you know, regardless of how things turned out. Um, in the 1930s, he um, would travel. He used went on a bunch of trips around the United States lecturing, uh, but also goes abroad to the Soviet Union, Japan, and Haiti. Wow. Right? Which at this time um, has political implications to it. Uh -huh. He is very interested in socialism, hence the reason he's going there. Um, in the late 1930s, this was exciting to me. Hughes does a lot of writing actually in theater. So initially he's kind of working on poetry. He writes some novels. But in the late 30s, he writes a bunch of different plays. Um, and he writes a drama that takes place in the South called Mulatto. And it becomes the longest running Broadway play written by an African-American until which play? The Color Purple. Lorraine Hansberry's A Raisin in the Sun. Really? Of which the epigraph comes from a Langston Hughes poem. What a great coincidence. Isn't that cool? I like that. I just really love that. Um, yeah, so like dovetailing, I don't know, whatever you want to call it, serendipitous, but I just thought that was really nice. Um, in 1934, he publishes his first collection of short stories, which I think we should both read. It's called The Ways of White Folks. Yes. And I would like that immediately. Um, in 1937, a couple years later, he serves as a war correspondent for different American newspapers during the Spanish Civil War. So again, his interest, I think, in socialism takes him over to Europe, um, but he also winds up then serving as a journalist for um, the American papers. Right, and I think I'm always just baffled by how many artists were attracted to the Spanish mm -hmm. Civil War. I mean... How many? I Picasso? Like, oh, like I'm thinking art... of authors. And I was like, I think it was two. Well, Ernest artists... Hemingway and Langston Hughes. Yeah, but artists, authors, like this specific mm -hmm. conflict. Who was the dictator? Franco. Franco. But that's his last name. Right, but what was his first name? Francisco Franco. Franco, right. Controversial. Very. Any Hoosier... Um, in 1940, Hughes publishes an autobiography up until his age 28 called The Big Sea, which was... The letter or... Like the ocean. Okay. S-E-A. Um, and like, I was trying to think of this while I was typing this up. Like, I don't have anything, like, what would you write about? We're almost, we're, we're close to 28. Neither of us have been a war correspondent or spent time on <laughs> or a ship or one literary published. or a patron. Mm, I think what are we doing missed, wrong? Yeah, it's like we clearly missed something here. <laughs> um, so anyway, this is also another Midwestern interest. In 1941, he winds up in Chicago for some time and he helps found the Skyloft Players, which is an African-American theater company that supports black playwrights. Um, and offers an opportunity for theater to be told from the black perspective, which again is something that isn't being supported by mainstream white media outlets. Um, in 1942, during World War II, uh, Hughes actually begins a column for the Chicago Defender, which is a black newspaper, and he introduces a character named Jesse B. Semple, called Simple in popular lexicon, and he's a black everyman who uses humor 
to allow Hughes to talk about some actually really serious issues that are plaguing the African-American community um, and racial issues at large in the United States. So it's through this sort of accessible character that he's able to kind of point out these truths um, while also being appealing to mass audiences. So this column actually runs, I think, for almost 20 years. Wow. Um, which is, I think, really amazing. Uh, throughout his career so far, Hughes didn't have a ton of money. He made money, you know, enough to sort of pay the bills, but nothing to be comfortable until um, the late 1940s when he writes the lyrics for Street Scene, Kurt Vile musical. Mm. Uh, and he gets enough money to buy a house in Harlem. Again, I think Langston Hughes is, a, is an author very much associated with Harlem, the Harlem Renaissance, uh, but he really was in so many senses a man of the world. Like, think about the number of places I've mentioned just so far in his life in this episode. Right. He's gone all over the place and has lived in a ton of different places. So I think that's sort of important to keep in mind is that although he is very entrenched in, in the Harlem Renaissance and the Harlem culture, he really traveled all over the place. Um, he also teaches uh, at Atlanta University, which is Clark Atlanta University today, as a creative writing professor, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, and Can you imagine it, being taught by Langston Hughes? No, but here's... Okay, so here was a thing that I found out. When I was reading... So one of the books of poetry, actually, that I bought while we were in Iowa was by Rita Dove, who I'd heard of but didn't know much about. And I bought her book, uh, one of her books. And she currently teaches at Arizona State University. And I'm like, are you kidding? That's freaking bats. Wait, why? Like... She's this amazing poet, and you could just go learn from her. Like, I guess I just think of, like, yes, all of these icons. Like, we weren't alive at a time when Langston Hughes was alive. Right. Right? So just dreaming about that feels like a fictional exercise. But, like, there are literally poets and stuff today who've won awards and are crazy talented and authors who are teaching at universities. Like, and Toni Morrison. You know, like imagine having Toni Morrison as your professor. I couldn't even show up to class. I would be too intimidated. Yeah, could you even turn in an assignment? It'd be like, I don't think I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, professor. I didn't turn in this assignment. Not because, because I didn't get it done, but because I'm not worthy. <laughs> I'm terribly frightened of you. That is... <laughs> Anywho. Uh, so in 1951, Hughes writes Harlem, uh, a.k.a. What Happens to a Dream Deferred. There you go. Mm. Uh, which discusses, again, the concept of the American dream and its role or failure, I, I would say, in the African-American community uh, because of the lack of access that African-Americans have. In the mid-1960s, um, Hughes kind of has a schism in popularity. Many of the older generation that kind of grew up along with him and watched him rise to fame obviously still really support his work. But your younger generation of black writers um, are still trying to figure out how they feel about him because racial integration is being brought up and is becoming part of the societal conversation. Um, lots of black writers don't really consider his writing to be up to date. They see it um, kind of as dated because Hughes really encouraged black writers to be objective about their race, but not to scorn it or flee it or kind of use it in that way. So he had very specific understandings of the way that his blackness played into his writing. 
Um, and this actually pulled in for me ideas about the feminist discussion and how some people believe that the modern feminist movement is too extreme. And what I would imagine was back in its first wave iteration, also too extreme. Um, but Say more on that. You mean that like the first wave of feminists was also seen as too extreme? Right. Like, you know, bra burning feminists or whatever you want to call them. Or like them. those Militant. women who want to vote. Like, can right. you even imagine? <laughs> God forbid. They should just vote. Women vote indirect. Quote, right. and Wilder. Unquote. Um, so he uh, kind of has this in the 1960s, I guess, crisis of, of writing popularity in the way that young black writers are thinking of him. However, uh, he is remembered as, a, as an author who really helped foster young writing careers uh, by giving advice. He introduces them via his network and connections and that kind of thing. Um, Alice Walker is one of those people who benefited, which, as you mentioned earlier, uh, The Color Purple that Hughes helped discover and foster along the way. And um, I think that uh, it's sort of important to realize for as influential as his writing was, he was also influential in giving back to the communities that he was a part of. Um, speaking of community, I guess, um, he was diagnosed with prostate cancer and died of complications from an abdominal surgery on May 22nd in 1967 in New York. Um, you can go to Harlem and see the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture, where his ashes are interred today. Um, I would love to, uh, I pulled this quote from another uh, black writer, Lofton Mitchell, who responded um, with this sort of news and remembrance of Langston Hughes' death by saying that Langston set a tone a standard of brotherhood and friendship and cooperation for all of us to follow. You never got from him, I am the Negro writer, but only I am a Negro writer. He never stopped thinking about the rest of us. End quote. And Talk about think, community. Right? Words to live by. And I don't, I'm not quite sure why, you know, I can articulate why a certain writer speaks to you, you know, like, why does Kurt Vonnegut speak to you as opposed to all the other writers in the world? But there's just something that every time I read a Langston Hughes poem, I get chills. Mm. And that has happened for the last several years as I continue to teach his poetry in my classes. Um, there's just something about his, his words and his work that I find deeply human and wildly important in understanding our experience. Yeah. Wow. So that, yeah, is Langston Hughes. So I would love to invite you, if you have not read a Langston Hughes poem yet, or in many years, to revisit one inspired by this week. Again, in, this, in the um, spirit of Mary Oliver's episode, if you would like a Langston Hughes poem bouquet, let me know. I sent a few out last time, and I'm more than happy to do so this time as well. Um, so let us know what your thoughts are. If you have a favorite poet or poem that inspires you, let us know what it is. We would love to encourage and foster that dialogue. Um, but thank you for all of the support that you give us. It makes us really happy to reflect on it as we start each episode, um, to hear how people liked the stuff that we're talking about. Thank you, yeah, for your support and uh, for always keeping it lit. There's one.